There's no there there. You remember that phrase? Oh, if you're watching the news reporters about a year ago, it just kept coming out of their mouth. So trendy. It made me, ugh. So I can't believe I'm starting a sermon with, there's no there there. Some of you grammarians can tell me if that's actually even a sentence. But that being said, I think that quite nicely summarizes what increasingly is even Christians' perception of ordination and the laying on of hands. And honestly, again, this as so many other topics, when the church mindlessly does these ceremonial things generation after generation, finally a more purist generation will rise up and say, well, why do we do that? Good question. And is it just self-aggrandizement? Is it What is it that the church is doing when, when we do it? Is it just a ceremonial ritual trying to beef up the authority of the church? Look, we need to look at this thing that we're about to do. For in a few moments, you're going to see the elders circle around a man, put their hands upon them, and pray. And it will be proclaimed then that he is now an ordained elder of the Church of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Question number one, the laying on of hands. Is it really important, and if so, why? Question number two, and how would it change not only the way Alan will serve his office, but how we will respond to his service? by ways of expectations and support. That is our ambition in this sermon today as we turn this passage of 1 Timothy 4. I know we're in a, in a series in 1 Timothy, so we've skipped ahead. No, I didn't just preach the whole book last week, but it ties in nicely to what we did talk about last week. For the context of this is, of course, throughout the book of Timothy, there is this shadow of false elders as we saw last week, those who would appoint themselves, who had great uh, charismatic, quote-unquote, and make sure you hear the quotes, because you'll see in a minute, gifts, that is, populous gifts, particularly susceptible to the young. But their teaching, well, in the words of Paul, is they didn't know what they were talking about. And they were in all sorts of ways taking the church into what Paul described as a shipwreck, which perfectly sets up just the importance of this event. Do we believe in ordination? If so, what does it mean? Why is it important? And how should it change the way we live our life? Lord, we pray now that you will come into this space. Father, we know that if what we are about to learn is true, that to ordain a person to the office is to represent, is to acknowledge, is to respond to your decree, your ordaining an office, and your establishing a means to fill it by your Spirit, which is testimony to your continued presence in our midst, your continued devotion to your church. 
a continued means of grace wherein you are in the midst of us, even in flesh and blood, as mediated through the office of elder. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. First question, what does it mean, the laying on of hands? Well, verse 14, did you hear it? We'll get back to the command, do not neglect, but listen to what he says. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, remember that word last week, which the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, there is a very real and supernatural transaction by the Holy Spirit to the recipient that is contained in the description here of the laying on of hands. There is a charismatic power and grace. That is that word, charismata, in the Greek. There is a charismatic power and grace of God conferring as fitting the duties and responsibilities of the apostolic office of elder into which that person is called. I'm going to read that again. There is a very real, supernatural transaction by the Holy Spirit to the recipient wherein the charismatic power and grace of God is conferred as fitting the duties and responsibilities of the apostolic office of elder and to which that person is called. Now you're going to say, what? After last week, remember I told you, can't believe a thing I say. It's not prophecy until it is exposition of what is prophecy, which is the apostolic word of God. That's what prophecy is. Today, as we saw. And so here it comes, briefly. Notice the way this word is used throughout the New Testament. Paul calls them spiritual gifts. You'll often see that translation. Spiritual gifts. That is, gifts of, with, from the Spirit. Gifts that only the Holy Spirit can give. These are not natural gifts, these gifts of charismata. And I know some of you are going, Woo, I'm listening, Preston. 1 Corinthians 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And he goes and begins to speak of these things. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And Hebrews 2 especially, verse 4, while God also bore witness by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. If anyone says to you, does your church believe in spiritual gifts, you're going to say what? Yes. If anybody, by the way, says to you, does, does the church, your church believe in the gifts of prophecy? What are you going to say? Yes. And we can go on with this line of thought. Does your church believe in, in apostolic succession? You're going to say, this is, this is an extra credit point. Yes. You see, we need to define these terms though carefully. And so notice especially now, I've given it a definition, so you've said, okay, there's these spiritual gifts of the Spirit, which means not natural. But what do you mean exactly, Pastor? Well, listen to Acts 9. Because here we, we, we see it as accompanied the laying on of hands. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what is associated with this laying on of hands. It's an anointing, as we see here, of here, the apostolic office. Verse 2 Timothy 1, 6, when he's exhorting Timothy, who has been ordained through the laying on of hands, he says it this way. For this reason, I remind you to flame the gift, to fan into the flame the gift of God. The Holy Spirit is God, remember? And here he's told to flame, you know, to, to, uh, to fan the flame. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Which is you through the laying on of my hands. And so let me say it again. What is the meaning? As a gift of the Holy Spirit, it requires a supernatural transformative empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, sanctification, perseverance. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a subjective work of the Spirit upon the individual in a way that doesn't necessarily, uh, it, in fact, it usually doesn't usurp or even create new natural gifts, but in a way in which it utilizes, it transforms the use of what God has endowed a person in his natural or her natural gifts. There it is. That's important. What we don't see is any indication that that this person who couldn't speak a word and couldn't talk a sentence became a teacher, necessarily. It could happen, and but that's not what we see. What we see is how someone who is gifted in thinking and teaching, perhaps, or governing and, and wise counseling, perhaps, or leadership, perhaps, or whatever these things are, but these things are worthless to God. In fact, they can be, as we have seen many times over, they can be anti-God. It's when the Holy Spirit supernaturally regenerates all this and transforms all this and perseveres all this that we have this amazing and special endowment of the Holy Spirit given to an office. And that's important to notice. The attention here in every one of the, when you lay the hands on while there is a man receiving it today, the gift or the, the laying on of hands is emphasizing the office. It's always related to a calling in the scripture. For instance, in Ephesians 4, 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Spiritual empowerment is not something for the individual, for the individual's sake. This is significant. But for the church, it is always related to enabling someone to fulfill a calling. Gifts and calling are used in parallel, uh, for instance, in Romans eleven twenty nine, As then spoken of in Romans 12, he says, for the gifts and the calling. You see that? Now, that's the classic use of Pauline Kai. And it's this gift that is calling, charismata, hear the word, Holy Spirit, transformative power, and the calling. They come together. And he says it here, gifts and calling uh, of God are irrevocable. And we have a little line in our book of church order that reminds the elder that this is a perpetual office. 
Up until there's reason to believe it by virtue of a trial, there is no reason to take it away. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit perseveres in it. And on it goes. So first thing you've learned is it is a supernatural, transformative grace and power that confers upon another human being in order to fill an office. But secondly, notice what else it says here. And this is really important. Why the laying on of hands? Why then is this gift accompanied with the laying on of hands? Well, there's a passage in 2 Timothy that begins to explain it. In chapter 2, he says to Paul, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's that grace word again. And and often we think of grace in a forensic way, as in, you know, a kind of... uh, pardon of sin or, or, or justification grace, but often it's used much more in a power way, a, a supernatural way. And this is what he's talking about, strengthened by the grace. I think he's re- relating this to his charismata, the gift that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful others who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations in that little statement. You notice that? Jesus Christ, apostle, Timothy, others. And that is the context of the laying on of hands. And you ask, but what's going on there? Apostolic succession. We believe in divine supernatural prophecy. A prophecy of God, a word from God that establishes the office of apostle. The apostle office which is equated to the prophetic office of the Old Testament insofar as it lays gives us the foundation of our faith. It gives us the very foundational principles, truths, holding fast to the truth, holding fast to the sound faith. What is the found, sound faith? That's what the prophets and the apostles have given us as rooted in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 2. And so what's going on behind this passage is this idea that that we are looking for a word from God as to who should fill this office. But the way way in which we now experience that prophecy today, as we talked about last week, is by virtue of expositional preaching, as preaching and teaching that which the apostles preached and teach, taught. (laughs) Excuse me. You see, it's that simple. And it comes, and it's not just dead preaching, it's not just remembering it, we believe and I showed you that last week, that when that happens, when you teach and preach and, and utilize the apostolic foundation of, of principles and truths, that we have the Holy Spirit enlivening those words in a supernatural presence way, like a sacramental word. We say it all the time. There's a sign and a seal in this table. We say it in preaching. There's a sign and there's a seal. There are words, and then there's words. You see, sign and seal. Words, but then in the context of a temple holy worship service like this, in a local place and time, where all the divine providences of God come together in this room, there is a real supernatural work in preaching that quickens the heart. And see, that's what he's talking about. That we are here then called apostolic succession, in succession to the apostolic prophecy, to continue upon that prophecy, declaring that which is an office or not, 
and that which is the qualifications of that office or not, and that which is the duties of the office or not. You see what we just did? That's called the regular principle. And that's what we're doing. The laying on of hands is meant to authorize. Remember last week we said, therefore, we're to test the spirits. We're to prove that which is prophecy. How would we do that? We just said it. It's important then that we test the spirits, that we prove that which is authentically from God by means of being measured against this apostolic standard or foundation. Remember the context here. Timothy, it's oozing every chapter, almost every verse. You feel the shadow of the danger of a shipwrecked church in Ephesus. All attributed to these multi-congregations that are now beginning to form under the authority of elders, preaching and teaching, teaching and ruling elders, you would say, as we'll see later, who were taking the church shipwreck because they were falsely prophesying, because they were claiming to have these Gnostic secret revelations from the Spirit in ways that were not tested against the standard of the apostolic truth. That's why Paul starts the first sentence in this book with declaring that I, an apostle, by explicit, positive, you could say, institution, by command of Jesus Christ, i.e., I'm not one of those guys. I am the original apostolic foundation office. So today we see the laying on of hands, which is to tell you, which is to inform you, that all due diligence has been done to test the spirits as pertaining to this particular man entering into this particular office, qualified and ready and willing to fulfill these particular duties and not one of the things I just said are created by this church or any person in this church. They are explicitly, by good and necessary inference, positive institution, whatever I can say, to help you get the power of this, it is in the scripture. And if it's not, you don't have to believe it. That's how careful this process is. And so when you see, at least in this understanding of, of ordination, the laying on of hands, we understand that we have seen the evidence of a conferring grace of the Holy Spirit to fill a particular office as mediated through a particular person as judged and measured according to the standard of a particular prophecy, not that which we can get by anyone in this world, but one who has already died, even the apostles themselves, who were explicitly commanded of Christ to set the foundation of the church by virtue of their teachings that have now ceased, according to John, the last chapter of our of a revelation of our, of our Bible. Whew, I got to take a breath here. But there we go. Do we even know that there is such an office in the church that then should oblige us to faithful obedience? Yeah, we see that in the scripture. Later in 1 Timothy 5, he'll say that there is, you know, he speaks of the elders. And he distinguishes those elders there. One type of elder which is apt to teach. We call that in this tradition the teaching elder. And there are other elders that assist that elder in the ruling and government of the church. A ruling elder. 
Now, I'm not going to go back and, and get into some of the issues as to how we understand that, but I can tell you that practically all the way back since the early years of the patriarchs, there's never been a time when you did not have that twofold distinction of office in the church. You saw a passage we picked up with it in Deuteronomy today. You see it in the prophets. There is this Sanhedrin dual office constituency, even in the New Testament, still remaining. We believe in the office. However you want to say it, teaching and ruling elder, bishop, uh, deacon in some you know traditions, and, and perhaps even in our own. But we have these twofold offices. It's interesting that when you read the epistles, like Philippians, it's not three offices, it's not one office. Often the salutations are two offices, referencing these dual elderships. Again, some cases they'll be described as deacons. Others just generally elders. Do we have such a standard reason to believe that it is prophetic word of God that we should have the office of ruling elder? Absolutely. Do we know and understand what those qualifications are? We do. Verse 16, we read it. Keep a close watch on yourself, that is, your life, your character, and your teaching, your doctrines. And you say, well, where do we find those teachings and character and doctrines? Well, right here in chapter 3, there's an explicit description of those descriptions of the kind of character that this person's to have. And then it's interesting when he speaks about to Timothy to, to teach the sound doctrines, the assumption is that Timothy, his protege who's been in his ministry, he doesn't dare go and give you a systematic confessional theology He presumes that it's already there through the teachings and apostolic. Just read a book like Ephesians or Romans, etc., etc. And we all know, even the the, the very books, many of which uh, Timothy helped him write, we know that Paul assumed there that he understood those doctrines. But there is a corpus of faith, of teachings to be judged by. Okay, so we know that there's qualifications. We know that there's an office we know that only through apostolic succession should it be uh, should a person be ordained, and we know that the laying on of hands is both a sign and a seal, a sign remembering the authorization, a seal in which there is a mystical relationship between receiving it and also being conferred the grace of Christ. And I'm going to put in that tag what we t- say about a lot of things, not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, but ordinarily, conferring of grace. doesn't necessarily happen at that moment. It's been happening for a time. It's happening now. It's going to happen into the future. But it's still a conferring of grace. Okay, that's number one. Number two, then how would it change not only the way Alan will serve the office, but how we will respond to the service by way of expectation and support? Well, listen to the command, Alan, wherever you are. Lost you there, brother. You're somewhere out there. There you are. Do not neglect this gift. There's incredible temptation to neglect it. It is incredible. Incredible. You neglect it because, honestly, you doubt yourself. You don't think people really want and care for your office in their life. And why would they? You know yourself. You know yourself, you're... The things that you don't have in your own mind, the things that you do have that may not be worthy of having. Um, 
there's a lack of confidence in our natural approach to this office. And yet it's exposed by what I've just said. Our confidence is not in ourselves, brother. When God, by the Holy Spirit, acting through the church and all the means of grace and process that's been going on, affirms this gift in you, as with Timothy, Paul, he says, do not neglect the gift. He particularly mentions Timothy, his youth, evidently. He says, youth is no no challenge to the charismata. Charismata transcends all of that natural stuff. So there's going to be a great temptation for you to lack confidence and to neglect the gift which was given to you. Because sometimes you'll be called to engage someone who doesn't want you to engage them. Sometimes you'll be called to, it's not just waiting for people to come to you. In fact, that's typically what won't and shouldn't. Well, I wish it should happen, but it probably won't most of the time. In other words, this is not a gift that that can be done, as we see in the very exercise of it, as we'll see later, shepherding the flock of God. It's it's something that cannot be done uh, passively, but proactively. It's 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 a it's an initiating gift. It's not just a responding gift, waiting for them to come to your to your house or your study or whatever it is. It's one of the greatest hindrances to exercising the office of governing then and shepherding and discipling is that we know we are sinners, and we know about ourselves what others don't even know, and we live in a world where, quite frankly, most people, you know, they don't even know they need you. It's hard. It's hard to push yourself on people. Really hard. It's really old. And he says, don't neglect your gift. And remember, secondly, the the other, you know, there there is a kind of anti-authoritarian spirit. I mean, it started with the forming of the America. We don't like kings and queens. But it goes on, doesn't it, in the spirit of humanity. That'll make it hard. But you've got to... Hear this command. Do not neglect the gift. Persevere in it. He talks about fanning the flame. Hear that? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. That's what I think he means here by fanning the flame. Don't stop studying the word of God. And scripture, that is the very power of God unto salvation, this gospel. Don't stop treating the gospel seriously for yourself first. You know, again, I've said it so many times, but it's just such a, a great metaphor of putting the oxygen jet mask on yourself in the plane before you take care of those you're called to care for. This is really important. Fan the flame of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life through confessing your faith. The worst, worst thing to do is in order to somehow prop up your respectability in the life of God or yourself or your, your congregation is to be is to pretend that you're something you're not and to not fan the flame of confession of sin and reception again of faith. You are first a child of God, Alan. Don't stop being a child. Don't stop praying for God's grace and power. Don't stop exercising this charismatic gift by using it in the life of the church, making time to do this. 
you know, it's like any other gift. If you don't use it, it, it atrophies. It's a muscle. It's a spiritual muscle. I mean, even when I've gone away on a brief sabbatical, I have felt the atrophy. It's amazing. I've found that I feel that I perform much better, and I mean that in a good way, when I'm actually busier in the ministry. Power. Fan the flame. There's another thing here that might surprise you, and I say this for the sake of the whole congregation. Protect your wife. You go, whoa, where'd that come from? You don't want to forget that she has not had the laying on of hands. She does not have the benefit of that supernatural, charismatic gift of the laying on of hands. We cannot expect of our wives the Holy Spirit that has not been promised to them. They've been given the Spirit and their promise to to, uh, be your wife and to be a member of the church like everyone else is a member of the church. But they will not do well to bear the burden of eldering. It will destroy their relationship with the church potentially. When we come home and we share our grieves about our 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 you know, whatever things we're saying or doing, if we come and talk about anything going on in the church that's related to the persons of the church, I mean, think about what we're doing. This this person actually wants to have a church. And not every time they see a fellow elder go, oh, God, I don't know if I like him anymore. He's, he's hurting my husband. It would be very, very dangerous, I think. Do not forget, yes, you should talk and you should pray together. And, and there, like any other relationship, there's a degree to which there's a kind of co-teamness to it. But it's, but there is a line. And we always want to remember that. That it would be cruel and exasperating to put our wife in, in harm's way by, by bringing them into the spiritual warfare at the level that you will experience it in a session or in your own self as, a, as an elder. Protect your wife. Remember this gift is from God and for interest of Jesus Christ and of the church. Persevere. It is just plain in the word of God that if God has chosen this office and he has appointed you by his divine decree through the laying on of hands to fill it, that you have what it takes to fill it. And... Whether it's always explicitly appreciated or not, we know from Scripture, insofar as you do it according to apostolic foundation, that the church needs it and will benefit from it. Even if in, in ways, in maybe more ways that are unfelt than felt, I am convinced that most of your work will be unfelt by this congregation. But it will be appreciated in a healthy, peace, and purity church. Alan, you're a good man. I know that personally, but now I know that as by Jesus Christ, who has declared it so. And I know personally I am looking forward to giving you my respect. And that, of course, is my own confession, as a confession I would encourage everyone else to say today as well. Church, be encouraged. When a of the sure signs that God is present in our midst and he is still for you and not against you is when by means of prophecy, word, and by the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, he fills an office that he ordained for you as a shepherd of your souls. 
You're not forsaken, CPC. When Jesus said, I'm with you until the end of the age, and then he took off to heaven bodily. Yeah. Where'd you go, Jesus? Well, he mystically comes to you in the form of an elder. Praying for you. Counseling you. Standing with you. Teaching you. Correcting you. Rebuking you. Even disciplining you. It's God's grace as head of his church. Read some of those quotes that I put for you in the, in the front of the bulletin. There's three of them. Beautiful quotes. You don't need to read them now. <laughs> but take them home and read them and reflect on them. They're pretty powerful. So be thankful, respectful, and compliant. There's a passage in the scripture we often talk about where in Hebrews chapter 13, it, it says, you know, to, in so many words, I didn't put it here, but it says, you know, to obey them and, and to make it easy for them. For it is good for your soul, it says, to do that. Don't make it hard for this or any other elder to be your elder. If, in fact, they pursue you, welcome it. You want to make it even easier? Pursue them. Seek after their counsel and teaching. Desire it. Certainly expect a man humble that is not going to give you and pontificate upon you his own opinions. You'll find someone, I believe, in this church who will know their limits, who will take you to the Scripture, who may even bring you into a context with a teaching elder and and go to the Scripture again, and may even go to the council of the session to discern God's will. But make it easy for him, for this is well for you. And so we have, I hope, the questions answered. Have they been answered? Can you, the congregation, now enter into the liturgy of ordination believing it? Having great confidence in its efficacy in our lives? Thankful to God for it? That you might therefore take a vow? Let us pray.